the thing to remember is that this is a threat. This is an attempt to paint Western liberal society as failed. You can show, oh, look, there's so much anti-Semitism in this country, there's so much racism, and you claim that democracy is a better system. It's a threat. This is a defining moment in the future of Western democratic existence. That's Deborah Lipstadt, the U.S. Special Envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism, explaining how a wave of hatred against Jews endangers democracy. I'm Margaret Hoover. This is the Firing Line Podcast. Since the October 7th Hamas attack against Israel, anti-Semitic incidents around the world have surged. I see myself as an equal opportunity fighter of anti-Semitism. Deborah Lipstadt has been fighting anti-Semitism and Holocaust denialism for decades as an academic and an author. Her victory in a UK court over Holocaust denier David Irving, who had sued her for libel, became the subject of a 2016 movie, Denial. You can have opinions about the Holocaust, but what I won't do is meet with anyone, anyone who says it didn't happen. Now Lipstadt represents the Biden administration around the world in this moment of crisis. The speed with which the anti-Semitism began to emerge, not on October 14th or 15th, but 8th, 9th, immediately. And she is speaking out against those who seem to treat the hatred of Jews differently than other prejudices. Why does it seem that it is harder to condemn Jew hatred than to condemn racism? You have to ask the people who are not doing the condemning. Ambassador Deborah Lipstadt, welcome to Firing Line. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've been studying anti-Semitism for more than three decades as a historian and author, and now as the Biden administration's special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism. It's been more than 100 days since Hamas's attack against Israel on October 7th. How do you understand why an attack against the Jews triggered, as you put it, a tsunami of hate against the Jews? It's, on one hand, it's easy to explain, and on one hand, it's hard to explain. Let me start with the hard. When you can explain something, you're talking about a rational thing. You know, why is uh, the house leaning? Well, the foundation here is weak or whatever it might be. When you're talking about anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism is a form of prejudice. And if you think about the etymology of the word prejudice, prejudge, don't confuse me with the facts I've made up my mind. Having said that, I think we can explain parts of it. I think that um, it gave, uh, it suddenly opened up a sentiment to tsunami. It gave rise to a tsunami of hatred. Some of it coming from Islamists, Hamas and some of their supporters, not all Muslims by any means, but certainly uh, many more, uh, the radical and who were very happy about this. Um, It was seen as, you know, Israel in many respects, and you can disagree with policies of Israel. I disagree with many of the policies. Many Israelis disagree with the policies of the government. But Israel has come to epitomize for many people the Jew. And many people who are reluctant to, to, be, to express anything anti-Semitic and who would be very upset 
if you said what you're saying is anti-Semitic, are not reluctant to criticize Israel. And again, not policies, but the existence of Israel. Everything Israel does, uh, pointing the finger only at Israel. And um, when when that happens, when they you single out Israel, I'll give you an example. The October 7th gender-based violence, the rape, the mutilation of women, uh, which happened in horrific, it was barbaric. That's the only way of describing it. It was barbaric and done to humiliate, to humiliate the women while it was happening. And who knows what's happening to the women who are still hostage. When there've been other instances of gender-based violence, Boko Haram, kidnapping the young women from school, uh, the Yassidi women who were treated horrifically, um, Iranian women when they were so punished and some in fact uh, killed for taking off their headscarves, the human rights organizations, the feminist organizations had no trouble condemning it, some within a few days. They didn't say, oh, we have to see the evidence, we have to see the proof, we have to see the rape kits. Here there was a resounding silence. Now, some eventually did speak out and some are saying, oh, we now have data to show that it happened. But one of the watchwords of the Me Too movement, which I greatly support, is believe the women. Now, here they didn't believe the women. So what's, I, I, together with a colleague of mine, our ambassador at the Human Rights Council, Michelle Taylor, we penned a, a, a op-ed in The Guardian, a left-leaning British publication, because that's the audience we wanted to reach. And we asked the question, how, how is this atrocity different from all these other atrocities? And the only difference we could find is the perception was that they were all Jews. Now, of course, they weren't Jews. Some of the women who were uh, abused and um, subjected to gender-based violence were Muslims, some were Druze, um, but because they were in Israel and they were seen Israelis, that's, this is what was done to them. So if, if that's the only difference, that's anti-Semitism. So calling it a double standard is a sanitized version. Yes, that's right. It's that's not right. double standard. It's, it's, it's anti-Semitism. It's anti-Semitism, exactly. Let me ask you about a similar scenario. By the way, I just, <laughs> let me just put a pin in the term gender-based violence. Mm -hmm. That also feels like a very sanitized terminology. Yes. rape. For what is actually using rape as a weapon of war. Rape, humiliation uh, as a weapon of war. And there's... When it comes to rape and all the other kinds of gender-based violence, uh, generally rape and, and others, uh, other actions, there is no but. You said you published it in The Guardian strategically yeah. because that was right. the audience you needed to target. It's a center-left audience. Why? Look, I think it's important to target everyone. But you published it in The Guardian, Guardian. because of the because, audience. Because these are organizations, entities, individuals who claim, often rightfully so, that they their raison d'etre, their motivation there is human rights, human rights of anyone, irrespective of who they are, irrespective of what color their skin, of the religion, of their ethnicity, of their nationality. Uh, these are organizations, the women's organizations, that claim to care about women anywhere who, who are subjected to discrimination, prejudice, violence. So you would have expected them to be in the forefront of con condemnation. Mm -hmm. The person on the street who doesn't speak out about anything, I'm not going to give them a pass, but I'm going to say, you know, but here are people whose, whose watchword is 
If it's a human rights violation, we will speak out, we will condemn, we will call attention to it, and they didn't. It evokes the Martin Luther King quote, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of the our silence. Or Hannah Arendt, the, the German philosopher who after the Holocaust, and I'm paraphrasing here, said what, what hurt us was not the words of our oppressors, but the silence of our neighbors. In, in a similar vein, what struck me after 10-7 was um, I kept thinking about the summer of 2020 and the murder of George Floyd mm-hmm. and how every political organization in America, elected official, corporation, company, rushed to make a statement about combating and recommitting to the ending of racial prejudice in the United States. And by the way, this was international. It wasn't just in the United right. States. I think about how um, when... Russia invaded Ukraine illegally. There wasn't a town in America or frankly throughout Europe that didn't wave Ukrainian flags in solidarity and with the Ukrainians. And the universities were also there in defense of the Ukrainian people and the illegal invasion by Russia. And that there was a, a, a massive silence around this event in 10-7, and in some cases, frankly, a blaming of the Jews when it mm-hmm. came to universities or a silence in the That's condemnation right. of the... Um, about the sexual violence case, you said it's not just a double standard. It is anti-Semitism it in that case. It is anti-Semitism. That's exactly right. If the only reason, and it was the only reason we could discern that you kept silent in contrast to all these other cases, and we only meant, we didn't mention all the cases, what's the, you have to, as a historian, you look for what, uh, what's the difference here? How is this different, to paraphrase the Passover Seder, from other, from other incidents? The only difference we could find was the perception that these were Israelis, and ipso facto, somehow deserving. And how about, do you think the same is true with the examples of the summer of 2020 and, and the, the response? Jo- yeah, look, the, the outrage of the George, George Floyd murder was... Leg- of course, uh, everyone. all those corporations... Many were silent here. And another thing that's quite different, sometimes when there is condemnation of anti-Semitism, not necessarily around October 7th, a corporation, educational institution, an NGO will say, we condemn anti-Semitism and racism, homophobia, all of which should be condemned. But the the action you were talking about was anti-Semitism. And I said to someone, using the George Floyd example, I said, when George Floyd was murdered, if you had issued a statement saying we condemn the racism that brought this and we condemn homophobia and misogyny, people would have said, what are you talking about? You know, you've got to, I've learned this, in fact, from people who who teach about racial equity and diversity. So the person said to me, you've got to call something out for what it is. Then you can put it in a bigger framework. Mm-hmm. But for, you can't just say, oh, we, we hate hate. That's sort of, oh, let's sing Kumbaya like we used to do in summer camp and everything will be okay. You have to call something out for what it is. Was it double standard that they didn't call out the anti-Semitism after 10-7? Uh, I, think, I think absolutely. Is it I a double it, standard or is it more than a double standard? Than, is it it's anti- a double standard, which is uh, a, a characteristic of anti-Semitism. And again, 
not to say that Israel's policies were perfect. I, you know, that's that's a whole separate issue. You make a very clear distinction between criticizing the government of Israel and mm-hmm. criticizing that's Israel's right to exist. Look, if criticizing the government of Israel was anti-Semitism, the hundreds of thousands of Israelis who are in the street every Saturday night for months protesting the proposed judicial reforms would have been anti-Semites, which of course is ridiculous. The national sport in Israel is not soccer or football. It's criticism of the government. Everybody knows better. So we're not talking about that. And anybody who says, if I criticize, I get called an anti-Semite, no. The people who have been called out were the people who glorified what Hamas did and who who uh, talked about deserving it, you know, and, and then who engaged in anti-Semitism. For instance, this protester in uh, Australia and the protesters who carried uh, gas, the Jews, or the protesters in a number of countries, all very similar, strangely, but who carried signs with a garbage can and a Jewish star in the garbage can. What is that? Or the people who torched a synagogue in Philadelphia, who torched a synagogue in Montreal. Why are you torching a synagogue? If you say anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism are two separate things, please explain to me why you're burning a synagogue, why you're trashing a Jewish delicatessen. What's going on? Why is it harder, or why does it seem that it is harder to condemn Jew hatred than to condemn racism? You have to ask the people who are not doing the condemning. Or it's the, a lot of people, it's and a it's a lot of, of corporations. I think in studies. part, to answer it, it's a, good, it's a very good question. I think in part, because when we're talking about anti-Semitism, we're talking about the longest or the oldest continuous hatred. Um, and it's not a competition of which is worse or et cetera, but it's the oldest one. It goes back the furthest. If you look at virtually every major religion, Every major intellectual movement, uh, political philosophy, certainly that has been predominant in the Western world, to use a, a term loosely, whether it's Christianity, whether it's Islam, whether it's Protestantism, whether it's Marxism, whether it's socialism, communism, uh, eugenics, uh, you know, you will find in them uh, a... Um, that the cornerstone often is, amongst other things, we are not like Judaism. We are not like the Jews. We are a counterpoint. So that anti-Semitism has been baked into uh, certainly the Western world and beyond. But racism has too. Absolutely. And racism is baked into this country. Uh, Racism is a serious, serious problem. There was a national reckoning with our racism in 2020. Not as as much as there should be. Yes, there was. And there hasn't been a national reckoning with the the pervasiveness of anti-Semitism. something else as well. Um, In most cases, certainly of racism, the racist punches down. The black person is okay. The person of color is okay as long as they know their place. As long as they don't try to live in my neighborhood, in my building, send their kid to my school. They're they're important. We know them, but they have to know their place. The anti-Semite punches down. The Jew is dirty. The Jew spreads COVID, etc. But they do something else that they don't do in the case of of these of racism. They punch up. The Jew is more powerful. The Jew, the Jew, not Jews. The Jew controls the media. The Jews controls the banks, the corporations, the the electoral system. So if I'm punching up, 
I got to protect myself by any means necessary. So it's not just keeping them down, but I've got a, there's a visceral hatred and the Jewish threat, the Jewish threat to me. On top of which, there's another element here, uh, the Jew as manipulator. So think back to Charlottesville. What were they chanting? Jews will not replace us. So people called me and said, Deborah, what, replace who, what, when, where, you know, what, who are we replacing and what? And what it was, as you well know, was white, the great white replacement theory. The theory goes as follows. Remember the punching up and punching down. Those black people, those people, they're not smart enough. They're not talented enough to uh, be the head of the corporation, to get into the great school, which my kid couldn't get into, to be president of the United States. There has to be someone behind them. They're the puppets. Someone manipulating to get them into these positions of power, someone who's powerful enough, sneaky enough, and who will benefit from their advancement. So you get that as part of it too. Um, and I think all those things contribute. Plus the fact, going back to my point earlier about this longest and oldest hatred, if I were to say to you, oh, it was the bicycle riders who were at fault for whatever happened, you would say to me, Deborah, let's get you to a psychologist, you know, to talk about this. But if I say it's the Jew, oh, yeah, well, I heard about that. I believe that. Uh, I've heard something along that regard, in that regard. When you encounter anti-Semitism casually in your life, yeah, a person you maybe don't know or don't know well, just, you know, like, like it just comes off their tongue. Mm -hmm. Oh, they're all rich. They, they, that's where the Jews live. How do you, how do you engage with it? Um, depends on the setting. But if it's, I feel it's someone I can reach, someone I can educate, um, I'll try to reach out to them. I'll try to show them the absurdity of their statement. A lot of it comes from ignorance, and we acknowledge that. But some of it is utilitarian politicians, other countries, author particularly authoritarian countries, NGOs and, and political groups who know that anti-Semitism is a useful tool for riling up, for adding fuel to the fire. Now, I don't want to say it always comes from overseas, you know. Well, I, I, I know that you've referred to Donald Trump as a utilitarian anti-Semite. On, in the past, yeah, I don't want to. Get into I know, I know, I know, but I'm just saying. I'm just saying by as an example, how yeah. how has he used it as a utilitarian? Yeah, tool? Well, I would say let me let me let me stay away from a former President Trump and use Vladimir Putin as an example. Vladimir Putin, when they invaded uh, Ukraine and after the invasion, the illegal invasion, he talked about Ukrainian being Nazis and fascists and, and anti-Semites. And when someone pointed out to me that, uh, pointed out to him that President Zelensky was a Jew, he said, yeah, but he's not a real Jew. He's not a good Jew. Vladimir Putin. I don't think Vladimir Putin cares one way or the other. I don't think he's necessarily anti. So I have no evidence of that. But it was a useful tool to try to rile up his base, to try to win points. I'll give you another example. Uh, we're seeing now um, in increased anti-Semitism coming from the PRC, from China, on, on platforms where nothing goes unless some Chinese official in the government says this is okay. How do we explain that? Because in fact, the Chinese have always been philo-Semitic. 
though there's a, a journalist who once said a philo-Semite is an anti-Semite who likes Jews, you know? Don't, don't like me better because I'm a Jew. Don't like me worse. Come just like me for who I am. But they've always- In other words, they're differentiating, yeah, but with, with affinity rather exactly. than with a prejudice. A, well said. I'm going to steal that, and I'll, but I'll give you credit. Um, <laughs> I don't need the credit. Um, but uh, so there's always been a great affinity. The, the Chinese, if you went to China, you spoke to Chinese nationals in other places. Oh, you're Jewish. Oh, that's wonderful. You're an ancient civilization. We're an ancient civilization. You believe in filial piety. We believe in filial piety. You believe in the great edu- in education. We believe in education. You believe working hard and succeeding is a good thing. We believe that same way. We don't apologize for it. So why this 180 switch? And it's hard to know. What do you make of it? I mean, well, I, I don't know. I can't tell you precisely, but a I mean, hypothesis, you must have intelligence. Hypothesis. It's not intelligence. Hypothesis from knowing this and, and reading others and talking to Chinese specialists that it's a way of adding fuel to the fire. It's a way it's of. It's a destabilizing force de- That's right. Exactly. A destabilizing more than that. If I can plant anti Semitism in a Western democracy, not not ex nihilo. It's got to be there for them to build on. The fire has to be burning for them to add fuel. I can suggest to the people in that country that this is a failed state. Mm -hmm. So don't don't uh, tout for me your democracy. Look, you have anti-Semitism. Look, you have racism. They're both here. Absolutely, that's correct. But I've helped gin it up. But they're stirring it up. Um, You have spent a lot of, I mean, (laughs) your remit is the globe. I mean, your 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 purview. This is combating global anti-Semitism. Uh, you've mentioned China. You've mentioned Russia. Um, what governments? I mean, especially in the wake of Ten Seven, are you most worried about, or are you most focused on engaging? Well, I've engaged with um, a lot of governments. I've engaged, engaged with our allies to get a sense of what's going on there. And many of them take this very serious. Most of them, most of the Western democracies, certainly the European democracies, take this very seriously. How was your Ger- experience in Germany? I, I spent, uh, I had a long visit in Germany, along by, by diplomatic standards. I was there for about a week, I guess. And I was very impressed. They take it very seriously. They get it. They know. And how? what is the experience of anti-Semitism they, since 10 Well, one of men? the things that the Germans have uh, acknowledged more so than they ever have in the past, in the past, they, their main concern was, of course, neo-Nazis and anti-Semitism of the far right. And what I heard from German officials, from interior officials, from intelligence officials, et cetera, a concern about far right and and far left coming from both directions, you know, and um, I was glad to hear that acknowledgement. I w- in my confirmation hearings before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, I was asked, uh, which do you think is worse? anti-Semitism to the left, anti-Semitism to the right. And I said, you know, if I were Sholem Aleichem, who wrote the Tevye stories, which became Fiddler on the Roof and many other classic, wonderful uh, stories, uh, he was was humorous, but he used, like Mark Twain, used humor to skewer. He said that kind of, I would have said, I could imagine him saying that question is, would I rather die of cholera in Kiev or dysentery in Odessa? I don't want either. Mm -hmm. So I see myself as an equal opportunity fighter of anti-Semitism. I don't care whether it's coming from the right, the left, the center. I don't care whether it's coming from a Christian, a Muslim, an atheist, or a Jew. Yeah. I'm going to fight it. 
You traveled to Israel last month um, where you met with Prime Minister Netanyahu, and you also visited the communities that were decimated in the Hamas attack. What did you see? Uh, I saw destruction unlike anything I've ever seen, either personally or even, you know, in in documentaries and films. And it, it was just, it was with a savagery. I saw, you know, most Israeli homes, almost all Israeli homes, so they have a safe room to protect them from uh, bombs. And I went into the safe room of uh, a woman named Vivian Silver, a Canadian Israeli, lived in Israel for many years, a peace activist. She used to go to the border of Gaza to pick up Palestinians who were coming to Israel for oncology treatments, drive them to hospital, and then drive them back to the border. And with a worldwide reputation, the the house was disheveled, a shambles, burnt, But even inside the safe room, which usually, if it's an external fire, the safe room will stay, the walls will stay white uh, because it's built to withstand. The inside of the room was burnt. And they had found bodies in the room. Uh, And they, they said, you know, the people who were showing me around, we don't know if the bodies were dead when the fire was in here, but... I saw, you know, you saw, you'd see a children's swing sitting outside a house that was completely devastated, but there were still family pictures on the wall. So it was something that was so, so disturbing. And when you juxtapose that, I also saw the film which the Israeli government has put, has compiled from uh, uh, GoPro or whatever they call them, the films that the, some of the Hamas terrorists were carrying and the cell phones, et cetera. Um, the glee, you know, I, I listened to the taping of a, a phone conversation um, where one uh, terrorist calls his mother and says in Arabic, uh, uh, mother, I just killed 10 Yahudim, not Israelis, Jews. Mm-hmm. And one would have hoped that the mother would have said, okay, this is a war and we know you're a warrior, but but don't, when your enemy falls, don't rejoice. And she said, Allah Akbar. Uh, and you you heard those things and you just, it was devastating. It was just devastating. Or one of the opening scenes of the film shows a father running out with two little boys. They looked like they were eight and six or maybe seven and nine in their underwear. They obviously grabbed them from bed and ran to a, 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 a shelter. And one of the terrorists came in because it was all this, there was a camera right outside the house, killed the father, and the boys came running back into the house. And one is is wounded in his eye and it's bleeding. The other one is sitting there, why am I still alive? Why am I still alive? Why didn't they kill me? These two little distraught kids. And the terrorist is opening the refrigerator and looking for something cold to drink. And the disconnect was just... What, what was your takeaway from the consequence of the violence? I, I found that Israel's been traumatized. Traumatized... Um, First of all, that this happened. You know, the um, equivalent of 1,200 deaths in Israel is, I think, 15 uh, World Trade Center deaths. So as, as I, I recently heard a, a journalist saying, imagine that they had knocked down the World Trade Center and the Miracle Mile in Chicago and the Dallas Stadium and, um, you know, Century City in 15 different places. It was, and it was devastating. You know, I I have colleagues who really work on this wholeheartedly and 100%, 150%. Um, But it was also devastating to Jews. Uh, 
because A, Jews realized and understood that this was the biggest, the greatest um, massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. And then the speed with which, you know, Israel waited, I don't know, two, three weeks before it went into Gaza. The speed with which the anti-Semitism began to emerge, not on October 14th or 15th, but 8th, 9th, immediately. And I had friends who said to me, someone, you know, pretty far progressive left, before Israel had done anything, well, I hope the Israelis don't commit war crimes when they go into Gaza. I said, what are you talking, well, they, it's wrong what happened, but... You know, it was this immediate expectation. It was like uh, a floodgate had opened and I can express how I really feel. Let me ask you, there has been a pretty strong response about Israel's activity in Gaza. And there are way more than a few who call Israel's engagement in Gaza a genocide. Mm-hmm. How do you engage with that? Look, term? I don't, I'm not a military specialist. And I can't tell you whether a bomb that was used was too large or could have or they could have used a smaller bomb. But the term genocide Genes- has the term a very genocide specific has meaning, a specific according meaning. to the UN. And, you know, according to UN resolution, something proposed by Raphael Lemkin, who was professor of law at Duke and who really created the term genocide to your, your, your side killing, like uh, uh, infanticide, you're killing a whole genus, a whole uh, group of people, a whole entity of people. Um, Does that seem like a fair use no, of the term? No, I think, and it's a it's a very loaded use. And um, of course, it does was it surprise in, you? Uh, no. Why? Because I've seen too much of that kind of thing. I've seen, you know, I've been in this field. It, it is it. I mean, is it a double standard or is it anti-Semitism? It's, a, it's both. It's both. It's anti-Semitism. It's anti-Semitism. You can surely, I'm sure if I were a military specialist, I could find things about Israel's response, which are uh, were wrong, may have even violated rules of war. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to call it genocide, um, that that was very disturbing. Much of your work has involved trying to build positive relationships yes. in the Arab world, um, including working towards normalized relations with Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. um, between Saudi Arabia and Israel after the Abraham Accords and the positive developments between other Arab states. Mm-hmm. Um, Saudi Arabia now says this will not happen without a Palestinian state. Mm-hmm. The Biden administration is in support of a two-state solution. Uh, the Netanyahu administration is firmly redoubling its statements that it is not under any circumstance in favor of a Palestinian state. It views it as an existential threat. Um, Help engage the argument that anti-Semitism will be greatly diminished or muted if only there is a two-state solution. Um, My first trip as an ambassador was to Saudi Arabia. I was going to that region. I could have gone, I was going to go to Israel. I was going to go to uh, the UAE. And I could have gone to Israel first. And I said, no, I'm going to, and it was in, in end of June, July, you know, which someone said, an assistant secretary said to me, you're really committed to this, you know. <laughs> who, who goes to Saudi Arabia by choice, choice in July? I said, I'm going to make a point. And she said, I get it. Um, but I went because for many decades, Uh, Some of the Gulf states, some of the Muslim-majority states, not all, but some, have been purveyors of Mm anti-Semitism, have sent imams abroad, not with a a dictat, you know, go preach anti-Semitism, but if they did, 
It was okay. And I thought that if we could, I, mean, I wasn't there to address the Abraham Accords. I wasn't there to address Middle Eastern negotiations, what should give, what should be acknowledged, et cetera. But I was there to say to them that however you feel about the geopolitical crisis, um, anti-Semitism is wrong. And one of the points I made early in my trip to an imam in Riyadh, uh, when he was saying, well, if Israel solved the Palestinian crisis, there'd be no anti-Semitism. I said, you know, in my country after 9-11, there was a surge of hatred of Muslims, not even phobia, but hatred and let's mm -hmm. keep them out of the country. Mm -hmm. And uh, in an airport, there were a couple of religious Muslims doing their, praying at a certain point and someone reported them as terrorists, et cetera. I said, and many of us were, were felt that was wrong. And in fact, in, in New York City, there was an effort to build a Muslim a faith center, a community center on land adjacent to uh, Ground Zero, to the World Trade Center. And there were people who, who stopped it, who felt you know, that it was, it was uh, not being uh, respectful of the memory of the people. And there were many people, including many Jews in New York and other places who felt that was wrong. To blame a Muslim of any nationality who lives in lower Manhattan and wants a nice place to take their children for lessons in, in the Quran or to celebrate an iftar uh, or Ramadan, remark Ramadan, to, to punish them because other Muslims had, had attacked those buildings and murdered the people, mm -hmm. that's prejudice. Mm -hmm. And the man said to me, I'm glad to hear that. That's exactly right. I said, oh, I paused and then I said, well, that's exactly the same as when you say, if Israel solved the Palestinian crisis, there'd be no anti-Semitism. That's blaming Jews for what, and he got very quiet. I don't know that I convinced him, but he got quiet. But my feeling is that um, if uh, visiting the Abraham Accord countries, UAE, Morocco, uh, visiting with Bahraini officials in this country, eventually hoping to go there, um, and Saudi officials, um, as I like to say, countries that are part of the Abraham Accords and not yet part of the Abraham Accords, um, if we can normalize to whatever extent, if we can remind the Saudis, and many of them remember it, that Jews were indigenous to this region. Mm. When I walked into the office of a high-ranking official in the foreign office in Saudi Arabia, he stood up, put out his hand to me and said, I come from a city of Jews. And I said, Medina. He said, that's correct. Because, mm -hmm. you know, when the, uh, Muhammad talked about going to Medina and, and finding Jews there and um, hoping to convert them. Um, if we can lessen the tensions, if we can lessen the stereotyping, if we can lessen the hostility, that's a good thing all around. So, it, I mean, what you're advocating, I think, is a cultural reformation a around shift, a, a cultural shift. shift in terms of perceptions right, and optics, right, which right. Um, presumably would then have bearing on a geopolitical solution rather it than might, the other way around. It might. It might have bearing on the geopolitical situation, um, but it, it can't hurt. Yeah. Um, in November, more than 500 administration appointees in the Biden administration staffers um, sent a letter to President Biden urging him to demand a ceasefire. Dozens of State Department officials have also signed onto yes. official dissent mm -hmm. cables over administration's handling of the conflict. Do you have a sense of why there is an unusually passionate uh, dissent within the administration? about this? Mm -hmm. Well, look, there are a lot of people who agree with the policy. Um, 
you know, uh, I think, I, they, look, there have been tremendous tragedies in Gaza. And anybody who can look at what's going on in Gaza, particularly the children. Yeah. Um, not only the children, but particularly the children. And not feel empathy. I don't know where their heart is. I was in an Orthodox synagogue, a modern Orthodox synagogue on Saturday in Atlanta. And the rabbi was speaking about the portion of the week, which was about the uh, plagues and the darkness, the plague of darkness. And he talked about it as empathy, having empathy. Yeah. And here was this Orthodox rabbi who said, you have to have empathy for the children in Gaza who are suffering. You're suffering because a war was started by, by Hamas. He says, but you have to have empathy. So anyone who doesn't have empathy for that, for that suffering, I, I feel for them. And I think they're, they're truly wrong. Um, and I think there are many people who are struck by that. Um, and they, I'm, I'm glad to be part of an administration where people who dissent feel free that they can dissent. But I think the president has made his policy and his position very clear. Um. This program is a renewed version of Firing Line that William F. Buckley hosted for many, many years. And in 1992, on the original Firing Line with William F. Buckley Jr., he discussed anti-Semitism with the editor of commentary magazine, Norman Pedoritz. Your focus on Israel is the right focus. Uh, the, uh, uh, it seems that anti-Semitic passions, uh, for reasons that nobody quite understands, are inextinguishable, and if they don't have one outlet, they will find another. And, and, and most of the anti-Semitic ideas and attitudes that were directed against uh, individual Jews or Jewish communities uh, in the diaspora in the past have now been translated into the terms of, uh, into the language of international affairs and, and been, uh, been attached to Israel, to the sure. Jewish state, as the state, uh, Jewish state among the, the nations, uh, just as the Jews among the peoples. Sure. The pivotal question now that I have for you is to what extent is opposition to Israel and its policies actually driven by anti-Semitism? I can't give you an exact answer to that. I know there are people who criticize, who oppose Israel's policies. I know many Israelis who oppose Israelis, Israel's policies. But when you talk about Israel as representing the Jew and the fact that you, you know to be against the state of Israel now. To be against the existence of the of state, the state, of, state Israel of Israel, now, right? I would say, uh, if it's not anti-Semitism, it's certainly very close to anti-Semitism. It's the only national home. The Jews have one national home. Uh, it houses seven and a half million Jews. You know, there are people who say, uh, oh, we're looking for a democratic binational state, et cetera. That doesn't work very well in Belgium, much less in the Middle East. It doesn't. It doesn't work very well in Lebanon. It doesn't. It's been very flipped with the survival and the future of uh, half of the world's Jewish population. But what else could account for the virulent and widespread anti-Israel sentiment? It's very hard to explain unless you go to anti-Semitism. I'm reluctant to do that because I, I hate point, painting with such a broad brush, but I might be wrong. You know, um, maybe it is just that simple. And maybe it is just that simple. Maybe it's, uh, for some, it's an ignorance. You know, you hear things. Oh, the Israelis, oh, these. Look, some of those students who are marching on campuses, whether it's in England, whether it's in France, whether it's in Germany, whether it's in the United States, 
You know, if you ask them from the river to the sea, they don't know what river, what sea. I, I heard one um, student was asked, he said, oh, I think it's from the Bosphorus to the Black Sea. The student failed both history, geography, and, and Middle East uh, studies. Um, you know, and and it's it's an ignorance. I mean, and but students glomp onto things. They've been, you know, who is the oppressor? The person with the tanks. Who is the oppressed? The person with the stones. But here it's been much more than that. You are a, a student of anti-Semitism. You are an academic in this field. You have written and understand the history of anti-Semitism, but also how it has emerged in modern times and in the contemporary moments since the founding of Israel. How explain how anti-Semitism in this contemporary moment has taken on the language of liberation? It's uh, it's taken it on with the Jewish colonizer. The Jew is white. Now here's the irony: fifty-two percent of fifty-one percent. We don't know exactly, but that's the guesstimate of the Israeli population is non-European, non-Ashkenazi. Um, just now there was a tragedy of uh, twenty soldiers who died in a collapsed building. In the building was the child, I think, of a Thai worker who had come to Israel and the kid had been raised in Israel. There were Incas who had converted to Judaism. Um, you have Ethiopians. You have, you have a mixed population. But if you ask some of the protesters on the campuses, whether it's in this country, other countries, they will say to you, Israel, are white colonizers. Um, it's, it's an ignorance which has been too readily and too easily accepted. Um, whether in every case that ignorance has its roots in, in, in an anti-Semitism, um, I would say it's, it's often an unconscious. For some, it's quite conscious, but for some, it's, it goes back to my comment that this is the oldest, longest hatred. If I've heard over and over again that the Jews are wrong, the Jews have done this, it's a willingness to believe that is very disturbing. And I think the thing to remember is that this is a threat. It's a threat, as I said earlier, to democracy, to national stability. This is an attempt to paint Western liberal society, small l liberal, as failed. If, if you can show, oh, look, there's so much anti-Semitism in this country, there's so much racism, and you claim to, that democracy is a, be, a better system, um, it's, it's a threat. This is a defining moment in the future of Western democratic uh existence as uh, nation states, et cetera. I, I, I'll give it to you in your own words. You have said other minorities should not feel immune. It is not likely to end with the Jews. Like a fire set by an arsonist, passionate hatred and conspiratorial worldviews reach well beyond their That's intended right. target. That's right. Anybody who thinks you can fight hatred in silos or you're only against one group but not the other just you wait, Henry Higgins, just you wait. It's going to come around. With the emergence, reemergence of anti-Semitism in, in, in full force here in this country and around the world, how much confidence do you have about, what does it tell you about the stability of our own democracy? It, it worries me about the stability of our own democracy. But I have to say, Margaret, that even after all these years and all these decades of studying anti-Semitism, for some inexplicable reason, I remain an optimist. Uh, maybe, and you know, I know our time is, is ending, but maybe to, 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 to stress this point, Jews are resilient. 
There is, as a historian, I can say, looking back long before the Holocaust, going back to early massacres, the Middle Ages, the Crusades, go to the Crusades, the 10th, 11th, 11th, 12th century, uh, look at massacres in the 16th, 17th century, uh, look at early massacres in Eastern Europe, and certainly the Holocaust, where one out of every three Jews on the face of the earth was murdered. There is no logical reason why there should be Jews on the face of the earth. There is no logical reason why Jews should have survived and thrived. So, you know, when I was in Germany a few weeks ago, uh, I saw a, a news story in Spiegel in one of their major publications on of great concern on the rise of anti-Semitism. But the same week, there was an article in the Yusha uh, Algemeiner, the Jewish newspaper, on Jewish resiliency. So even as I fight the hatred, I, I am very much aware and, and treasure the resiliency of the Jewish people. And I want to say the same thing about Western democracy and certainly about the United States. We are facing a time when there's deep divisions in this country. We are facing a time, you know, ex external, external actors may be riling up the anti-Semitism in this country, but it exists. It's here. It's here very much so. Um, but I have enough faith in this country um, and in its, in the, in, as President Biden likes to say, it's the only country that was ever founded on an idea, on the, on the idea that rests at the, at the foundation stone of this country. We have a lot of work to do, a lot of problems to solve, uh, but I, I have to be an optimist because otherwise I couldn't go to work every day and do the job I do. Last question. We've spent a lot of time talking about what exactly the problem is and where it's showing up, but you have met with leaders of sports teams and sports leagues. You have met with cultural leaders. You have had a, an important push internationally to educate people about anti-Semitism. In your decades of experience of interacting on this issue, what is most successful in pushing back against anti-Semitism and, and what needs to happen? Um, I don't want to say education simply because, you know, you can be a PhD and an SOB at the same time. You know, uh, Goebbels had a PhD, you know, uh, the leaders of the Nazi party were, many of them were very well educated. But I think to show people, A, the terrible illogic of their beliefs and the terrible um, consequences of such beliefs, we won't change the minds of the committed anti-Semites, whether they're right, left, center, any faith or whatever. But the people I want to reach are those students on a campus, whether it's in Berlin, whether it's in Brighton, London, or United States when I'm back on the campus in the United States, um, and say to them, think about it what you're doing. Think about what you're saying. Learn about this. Figure out what the consequences are. I have to believe that that'll help. Will it solve the problem? I don't think anything's going to eradicate anti-Semitism. Um, may it, could it help in sort of uh, lessening the fires? Um, maybe. And, and that's why I do what I do. Ambassador Deborah Lipstadt, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Margaret. Thank you.